right, we're back with another Wheel Wednesday Behind the Wheel podcast. I'm with uh, Scott today, and we are joined with a uh, special guest. With all the news that's kind of going on with EPA regulations and just news in the tuning world in general, we thought it'd be really cool to be able to be joined with someone who's totally engulfed in this type of world and kind of bring their insight into uh, some of the new things that are coming up in, in tuning in general. So we're actually joined today with the co-founder of Hondata. We're really excited for him to be with us today. And uh, Doug, how are you doing? I'm absolutely great. This is a you know great time. This is the the industry is very buoyant, and I'm I'm so thrilled to be in this industry at the moment, and have been in so for about twenty three years. Yeah. So it's it's interesting. It's always nice to get with another company that's been around for a super long time. And I know you guys have were started in the late nineties, and in and I want you to be able to tell a little bit of that story, but. You know, Honda, I think, is synonymous with anything related to Honda tuning. And it's really super tied in with the whole segment, period. I yep. mean, I can't think of anything I did even growing up where we weren't tuning with, you know, people when they were doing uh, Hondas that were using anything other than really Honda. Yeah. I'm not the most proficient in terms of tuning, but, you know, I, I did have a, uh, a ninth gen uh, Civic Si FG4. And, you know, I, I had that with a Honda Flash Pro and uh, I had a little bit of experience with uh, the K Pro as well. So, you know, it's kind of cool to be able to talk to, you know, someone like yourself right now. It's, it's awesome because, you know, I'm familiar and use the products. It's very, very cool. So, Doug, give, give us a little uh, run through maybe of, of kind of give everybody a synopsis of like, how did Honda come to fruition? How did it get started? Well, guys, I don't have a job. I have a job. <laughs> okay. And this started in New Zealand right. in the late 90s. I had a Honda CRX, a B16A, because there's a lot of B16A CRXs in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. And uh, my business partner, who became a business partner, Derek Stevens, is he had a B16A CRX as well. So I did this and combined with Derek to do this for myself. How can I make more power out of this vehicle? And there was a chip in this engine computer. Yeah. And I pulled the chip and read the code from it and got all the documentation to figure out how it all worked. And then Derek and I worked on developing disassemblers and compilers to figure out what all the numbers did, what all they meant. So that took about almost 18 months to figure it out and come out with a product that someone would actually pay for, but we didn't design it with that in the first place. We designed it because we wanted our own cars to go faster. Now, what did we need to do to make that happen? That's, it's mind-blowing because at, uh, what, what year do you think that was, roughly? 1999. So in 1999, so all right, so let me put it in perspective. Only two years later, we were like I when I was really into my drag racing area, right? Mm -hmm. We're growing up, and we were struggling to use what was out right now, which was like a Pexi Super AFC piggyback controllers, you know, and and we were using things like trying to figure out how to hack mess and do different things because there wasn't much available to tune. So anytime you went, uh, you know, above, let's say, you know, 30 or 40% injectors, you really had to get creative for our, you know, from my end to do this stuff. So I know that that's what I was playing with, but you had the knowledge to be able to decode the the programming within an ECU. So Doug, there, there had to be some more background there. What, where's your proficiency come from in being able to do that? Well, okay. This is how a typical business is made up. 
I had a degree in physics. Okay. But I ran an Apple computer company in New Zealand at the, t- at the time, and I had my technician pull the chip out and read the code out. Um, so, yes, I have a degree in physics, and my business partner, Derek, has a degree in accounting. Excellent. So, with the degree in the physics, I do all the human resources and the company management, and because he's got the degree in accounting, he <laughs> does the um, computer programming and circuit design. That's, that's Love how it. it works. You do what you're good at. Yeah. And it was... After a trip to the U.S. in 1999, where we tried to do a bit of a scope and find out what people were doing in the U.S., and we found that there are very few people doing anything with computer programming, and those about two people who were in the U.S. didn't have the fundamentals. But by decompiling, by disassembling the code, we were able to rewrite and we actually ended up with the source code for the early honda ecu so we could recompile these issues to do anything we wanted we can turn it the computer into an ac control unit if we want but the first thing we found out that the map sensor for measuring air pressure was capable of reading to um about 10 pounds of boost and so we're going why Honda doesn't make any boosted vehicles, but that meant that we had the ability to recode the computer to behave up to 10 pound of boost like a factory boosted computer. Mm. And there were a lot of people when we came to the US doing boosted GSRs who were um, putting on rising rate fuel regulators, bigger fuel injectors, and they didn't run that well. And they retarded the ignition by about 15 degrees to stop it from detonating. But by recoding this in the computer, we could make this turbo GSR run like a stock Honda boosted computer. More power, cleaner. It started at idle with bigger injectors. So, so we had a solution that made the cars run very well. More power and cleaner. I think that's such a big piece of... The contribution that Honda made wasn't just for all of the segments, but for giving kind of one of the first on the ground abilities to plug and play with an ECU that actually kept all the factory reliability and a lot of the conditional tables and and different things like that, but build upon it and provide an architecture that allowed tuning to exist and us to make more power and do it efficiently like the factory would have probably wanted it to. Well, the guiding word of my career is efficiency. How can you do what you want to do it the best way so that you're wasting the least amount of time and effort and getting things done? Um, just as a, as a little bit of an aside here, the Honda engine computer is built with almost military-grade specification. You can remove and have failures and remove a lot of the chips from the Honda circuit board and your computer will still get you home. Get well, out. Well, but it will still do that very well. You can have the primary microprocessor fail on the computer and it will still drive you home. Wow. That's actually kind of mind-blowing when you hear that. I, I would have never thought. So as you kind Not of move... reliable. Yeah. This is one of the reasons. Yeah. So now as you move forward into different platforms, and boy, has there been a lot of platforms where Hondas have found their either the heart of the transplant of their powertrain or the different models and vehicles that became very popular and synonymous with 
you know, maybe sport compact tuning. Um, have you, what was the kind of complexities that you've seen as the generations move forward, maybe from that first initial area where you're getting into some of the early Integras to, to now? Well, the first which excited a lot of people um, was simply VTEC, the ability right. to yep. switch from a high, low lift, short duration, uh, emissions capable camshaft to a high lift, long duration race engine. It was that uh, that um, switch from street car to race car, mm-hmm. and um, that that was what excited a lot of a lot of people here. Do you have time for me to tell a little story? You tell every story, Doug. Of course. We're in. Okay. <laughs> well, in the um, in the late 90s, 90s early 2000s, um, a sport compact car rider called Dave Coleman um, was getting quite annoyed at the California police pulling over people and citing them for exhaust noise. Right. And... Um, and Dave was, no, 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 this isn't exhaust noise. This is intake noise. So what Dave Coleman did was he put the loudest possible intake <laughs> on an Integra and he found a police car parked on the side of the road and he drove back and forward past this police car, activating V-check every time until the police officer pulled him over and wrote him a ticket for loud exhaust. And Dave Coleman took him around the back of the car and said, officer, this is a stock exhaust. And the officer said, well, well, I've written you the ticket now, so maybe you won't do this again. Dave Coleman was responsible for getting the California Highway Patrol equipped with noise meters. Wow. So they could measure the exhaust noise. But um, the intake noise is a lot of what the VTEC noise is that people hear on their early model Hondas Mm -hmm. because... The exhaust noise with the higher lift cam duration and is traveling back through from the exhaust through the combustion chamber and out the intake. So a lot of the noise is intake noise, not exhaust noise. That's wild. I I think this is that I mean it kind of shows how long it's been a struggle between modifying vehicles and and kind of trying to remain within the law. <laughs> because I mean that was I mean that's such an early example, but it's such a it's such a interesting one because like you said there's a lot of issues i think that if you you know like like i've been playing with cars and and tuning import stuff since since the late 90s and uh and i think that if you're in that space there's no doubt that you have been either pulled over by a law enforcement officer that was just trying to do their job we're not we're not saying anything to that to that fashion but in trying to do their job, the misunderstanding or the uneducated view of what they were trying to cite you for wasn't accurate, nor was it was it correct. So it's interesting to see like kind of how far this really predates um, kind of some of the current issues that are going on. Well, that's the beauty of the industry that we're involved in with the internal combustion engine, which um, as I think we can all see that is drawing to a close with the advent of EVs and the um, time in the future, near future, in which we're not going to buy anything new that is not an EV. Yeah. So, but you touched on something for complexity. I might just backtrack a little bit. Sure. Um, the 
computer that we decoded for the OBD1 vehicles, the microprocessor that Honda used in that carried all the way through to the 2004 Acura RSX. Wow. And the Acura RSX. Now, it was you know, like a, the first was a Pentium 1 and the Acura RSX was a Pentium 4. It was a little faster and produced some more stuff. But um, effectively, we were able to use our software to decode the Acura RSX, our computer. And that was probably the most difficult thing up to that point that we decoded because that was first Honda's first Honda that had a variable cam. Okay. To move the camshaft around. And having tuned and raced those engines, um, that is, in my mind, the the best engine ever made. And mm. it was jumped on by the aftermarket for making heads and camshafts and pistons and rods. And the K-Series engine can make, and it still is, the, the best engine in my mind ever. Huge amounts of power, but reliably. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because it's like there we t- and we talk about it a lot when we get into any different podcast or when we talk to anybody about different engine swaps or powers or different things we're building. Um, that you know, obviously a K twenty four with all the different variants still offers you this an enormous. It really is one of the best engines I think has ever been um kind of put out into into production as far as you know especially from an aftermarket or sport compact segment preface so do you you know we're seeing we know that k24s now are finding themselves in far more than just hondas Mm -hmm. how does honda look into into that kind of future there's there's obviously an enormous amount of builds out there that will now and and kind of forever use that k24 platform to to build their car yeah that makes me think of uh that makes me think of nick uh uh tuning by nick yep or you know like we, we he's putting him in porsches yeah so we we spoke with a tuner up in canada he's in the toronto area who you know he's specific he specializes in swapping k series engines into porsches and uh yeah so you know that just kind of makes me tie in the same kind of uh question on you know bringing in Honda into stuff outside of the honda platforms mm-hmm. with, yeah. with still the k-series engines or it's a k20 or k24 well i think this is time to make a couple of interesting points the first common swap was the b swap the mm-hmm. b series the right. b16 the b18 b18c the integra and those engines are becoming harder to find mm-hmm. and more and the computers used to drive them, the OBD1 computers, are now 30 years old. Yeah. So we've got reliability problems with some of the circuitry failing on them. Um, of course, now you've just mentioned the K-series is becoming extremely popular, but the K-series stopped being made a number of years ago, and you're not going to be able to get the parts forever, and there are some good K-series engines for tuning, and there are some that are not so good. Right. And what I'd like to make attention to now, bring attention to, is that the modern engine swap we just created last Thursday, and it I'm announcing it here. We're going to call, Oof. we're calling this the L-swap. Okay. Okay. Not not the V-swap, the L-swap. L-swap. The, the L-swap is taking the L15 engine, which is the Turbo 1.5, such as the Civic SI engine. The, yeah, the new Civics, and, yeah. Yep, and the new Civics in Accords, 
in CRVs, there are thousands of these engines in junkyards. So as of Thursday morning, we got this bar approved for an L swap that I did into a 2015 CRZ. Okay. So we took the South Series engine, swapped it in, um, double the power, double the torque, 100 pound lighter, and it passes smog. So wow. that was that that's the core of everything that we do was we make it clean. So um, this L swap can go into anything now that we've got the recipe on how to do it. Uh, it can go into a 93 Civic, it can go into a uh, Corolla, it can go into a Volkswagen, it can go into an off-roader, it can go into a Miata, it can go into absolutely anything, and it can do it cleanly. Now, is that with the factory turbo? So With the factory turbo. Wow. So now, do you, as far as, you know, and you'll have to educate me a little bit here, Doug, the, the, as far as the architecture of, let's say, the K-series versus... You know, the, let's say this L series. Um, is there? We, I mean, the K twenty four has become synonymous with being able to make some really good power outside the box. Do you feel that the L series brings that along with it? No, right. Okay. It, it, I mean, it's notoriously an underpowered engine. You know, no. The L series engine is an economy engine. Mm -hmm. Got it. Okay, it's a world engine, so it's built cheaply. The rods aren't as strong as would like them to be, but there is uh, there are aftermarket rods. I'm talking about the engine as it comes from, from the factory. And they can be tuned on flex fuel to the point where the engine will break right. with stock rods. So there's a lot of aftermarket support for it, but what I'm referring to in this L-Swap is the thousands of engines in junkyards that are stock that you can't find the B series or the K series engine in quite the same quantity. Right. But the L series engines are clean um, with the stock cat bolts onto the turbo, and um, it, it, it's a it's a clean vehicle. And that's one of the ways that we keep off the radar of the EPA. Mm. It's you know it's interesting with it with the EPA because I think that we've seen some other tuning companies obviously they've had a lot to contend with uh with the epa and uh and i think you know the way they're going after certain things is 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 tough for me doug like i'm i'm not nearly as knowledgeable when it comes to you know um you know tuning as as you are but the the thing that does get me is that when i think about going back a whole bunch of years ago you know, there was all these different parts that had to continuously be serviceable to as, you know, as things age, whether it be points or carburetors or whatever it may be. Now, like you mentioned, you got cars now, like early Civics and different things like that. These cars are 30 plus years old. And I just can't help but think that with some of the modern technology, especially with the ECUs and the capability of tuning with these ECUs, that we can't make those cars even better and I feel like there's been this whole segment within the EPA that, you know, there, there's obviously no care to look for that. But, you know, with the, in the hands of the right tuner and the right software and the right capability, I think these a lot of these platforms could be made even more efficient and still make power. 
I agree with you um, on that. Um, but the EPA and CARB, California Resources Board, do have their regulations and there are hoops to jump through for getting your CARB approval or your 49 state approval. Yeah. Um, but I, I totally agree. You can you can make an engine way cleaner and way more power if it's put together correctly. But it takes a lot of money and a lot of testing to run that through the authorities. Yeah. You know, it's like I can't help but think that there that not, you know, again, that there's not another platform or or pathway for uh for some of this stuff to exist. For example, you know, maybe the EPA has quote unquote certified tuners that these guys have to do something with the EPA to become efficient enough to know what parameters they need to cross through or what different specifications they need to do to be able to tune some of these aftermarket cars and still meet or exceed the standards of the car came originally. But like, I don't, I don't believe that there's going to be a pathway in, in such a way to do such a thing, but it almost, it makes you think a little bit that if we can make a vehicle, even an older vehicle to have more power and have the ability to make it cleaner why should that not be in the in the ability that that we have to the you know to the public or to the tuning public let's call it well when you get into tuning and the bolt-ons for oh, this hondas in particular yep. there are so many bolt-ons and so many different combinations you can put together that mm -hmm. it's very hard to get a one combination that your Tuner, sorry, your end user will put on the vehicle. So yeah. there's just so many variables. Yeah, sure. So many variables. Yeah, I mean, I think that as far as so let's let's go from this direction. We know that you know as far as the production, at least as it looks right now, as far as production vehicles, we're now going to see more and more of these cars coming uh, from the factory, coming with options that are EV and. You know, from Honda's point, do you always feel that there'll be there'll be this just this market for Honda? Like it's just going to stay with this legacy, or is there maybe thought process in the future that you'll you'll have to consider EVs as part of this Honda tuning platform moving forward? We will look into it, but our sales data says that fifteen to twenty percent of our sales are coming from engines and computers that are thirty years old. So right. if we go thirty years into the future, then the engine swap thirty years in the future is going to be taking what's currently in the junkyards and putting it into older cars. So that's what I've just created. Right. Which is how do you take these L series engines and make them usable and fun for as I said, off road and maybe getting rid of your 25-year-old Miata engines and swapping an L-Series engine in to give you something of similar weight, um, but a lot more power and better fuel economy. So there's going to be plenty of options for us with what exists in the market right now based on who and what we sell to. Um, we'll definitely look at EVs, but there's more than enough to keep us busy. <laughs> Makes sense. And one, yeah. one of the things that I'm looking at, and it's something that I've not shared, is not shared with anyone, but um, we are looking at getting 49 state approval for flex fuel. Okay. That's interesting. That. Yeah. Well, yeah. Flex fuel, very high octane fuel, 
and you can make a lot of power and a lot of torque. And the initial results of us testing an 18 cord having come back from the SEMA test labs is the exhaust emissions are cleaner than stock Honda. Wow. Wow. So, Doug, I have to ask you this real quick. When when it comes, and I don't really know the answer to this. So when it comes down to, and let's use probably one of the more stringent bores, right? You would agree that, especially in the States, California is probably the toughest on emission standards, especially with the inspection process. Yeah. So when it comes down to that, when you go to, let's say I have a Miata and I want to put in a K24 or even one of the L-series swaps, and, and I eventually am able to buy everything I need from the um, from the tuning and the ability to run the platform from Han Data. It, does every single one of these platforms to be able to run in California need to be CARB certified individually, or is it just the engine, platform, and tuning software that has to be approved? Well, the first thing is they need to use, let's say, CARB Flash Pro. So we've got programming devices, Flash Pro, that have already got a CARB exemption order. Okay. For everything from the B16A certificate, sorry, the B16, that, the K20 um, K series engines in the early model 2006, 2007 plus civics. So, that's the flash bro. That's the first thing. We've got the carb flash bros and calibrations that have been certified with that meet the carb exemption order status. But when an engine swap is done in California, I don't think that's applicable for the United States. We had to take our vehicle to BAR, the Bureau of Automotive Repair, which just gave the tick and said, look, this is a safe installation. The drive shafts and the wiring, everything are working well, and they'll do a smog test on it just as well and make sure it 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 passes everything. And right. we get a new sticker on the um, door jam for the car saying, okay, this is the new engine you've got on the chassis. So the next time you get smog, you just have to point the smog testing station to the sticker. So for California, um, in this case, take it to bar the Bureau of Automotive Repair, and they just sign off. And so, when you do your engine swap, the first thing to do do have to do is it has to pass a smog test. Got it. Okay, so that's the that's the first pathway. Now, a lot of let's say going back to some of these other devices, um, they allowed tuners to to be able to adjust them and 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 develop a, a more fine tuned. Um, program for for each vehicle and each setup is that something that's gonna you think is gonna expire, especially in the state of California? It will always be locked. These this is what's offered, non adjustable kind of tunes. That is correct. The rules that to get a carb exemption order, the owner of the vehicle cannot change anything that is related to emissions parameters like fuel ignition and if they can do that uh, then it does not have a carb exemption order and mainly because most people don't know how to tune cars so they could really mess up the emissions by screwing around with the fuel and the ignition tables inside the computer so customer cannot have access to modify anything emissions related but we can change the boost Right. So with our current calibrations, the um, customers can bump the boost up a little bit because okay. bump boost doesn't affect emissions. Right. 
I mean, and, and for the most part, most of these emissions, they're not really wide open throttle emissions. They're mostly idle and cruise and, and constant emissions, right? They are, but a full carb test does a twenty. A full carb test it takes twenty five minutes, and they gather the exhaust for that entire time period, and that does include some full throttle testing as well. Mostly cruise, mostly idle, but some full throttle as well. That's very interesting. Yeah. And so, do you foresee? And again, I, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but I'm just trying to extrapolate. So, do you see? Uh, Maybe CARB is a, right now is something that's more intense, especially for people that don't live in the state of California when they look at it and go, wow. But do you see that that type of EPA restriction kind of applying to the majority of this stuff maybe out there in the future? The funny thing is, is when I visited CARB a couple of months ago, they even had orders for <coughs> electric engine swaps. Right. In Pacific, for example. I'm saying, why does CARB have regulations for <coughs> an EV swap? And I couldn't quite figure that out. So they seem to have regulations for pretty much everything. Yeah. Wow. So I think I think what's interesting about that to me is that by that really tells you that it's it's really has a it's more of this is a disconnect again between what CARB was supposed to be for and kind of what the end goal here is. But at the end of the day, and these are not Doug's words, these are my words, right? So like, but but at the end of the day, what we're talking about here is, you know, the rest of the, the rest of these states and different things, like, you know, if it's still, like, I know for New York, we're, we're an OB2, we do the OBD2 inspection, right? So if you have a car that's OBD2 compliant, for the most part, I think it's as long as it's newer than 25 years, you know, you plug in, and you have to have all the readiness go. Now, some of the failures that we'll have if we do an engine swap with, let's say we use um, an OBD2 car and we put in an OBD2 platform and we still use the the factory ECU that came with the platform, mm -hmm. right? So we get everything working. The issue will still be is that, you know, some of them will have immobilizers or different pieces in there that will fail the inspection because it can't verify that this is the, the correct ECU from that car. But... You know, the question brings up, can, will there be these engine swaps in other states that still will be allowed to do these types of things? Because Honda, especially if they're using like a, like a Honda platform or a Honda uh, ECU, they're going to be able to plug in and still access that same OBD2 compliance. Yes. Look, the, it's relatively straightforward to turn on, to get all the error codes turned off. The hardest thing for us with the CRZ engine swap, the L-swap, was to get EVAP, which was testing the evaporative emissions from the fuel tank. And it, it, it took, we had to figure out the driving cycle, how long you drove it, how much fuel you had in the tank, and just jumping through all the hoops. Now we've got that process figured out. But the goal is clean air for everybody, and you don't have to pull your cat off. You can have a car that is clean, green, and fast. Right. And that's pretty much everything these days. So, and that, and that's, I think, like, if you, like, out of everything that, that Doug's talked about, I don't mm -hmm. want to minimize any of it, but is everything that Doug's talked about, I think one of the most, like, powerful lines in there is that you can satisfy and check all the boxes and still have a more powerful vehicle. Yeah. Right? Like, the, the idea of modifications or um, 
or making more power being tied to poor emissions is not accurate. I understand that there's a lot of messy pieces in the middle, especially when you put people in there that may not be qualified to do some of these modifications or tuning that get done. But for the most part, there is a pathway there that can exist where everybody can be happy and we could still have a cleaner carbon footprint. And that's, that's such a big message. Yes. I'd love to share with you another story if we have time. Absolutely. Please do. In 2010, the CRZ was released. Mm-hmm. Right. And that was the most exciting Honda of the time, which was a little bit sad. And <laughs> right. I talked with some of the Honda um, engineers um, just yesterday, and they said the engine platform that went into the crz was the least powerful of the three options that was on the table for the crz right so the crz arrives it's the most um that that it's certainly sexy looking compared with a lot of the other vehicles yeah. and it's the spiritual successor to the uh 1990 honda crx sir right. so um oscar jackson and i from jackson racing set out about doing something about that so oscar jackson developed a rotrex supercharger kit to fit on the crz and i spent around seven months um developing the calibration getting the right injectors getting all the right bits and pieces but the goal was to get this carb approved get a carb exemption order for the jackson racing supercharger kit on the crz so this went to a independent laboratory in Orange County, where, again, they had it for a large number of months. And one of the stories that, well, this isn't the story, this is actually what happened, is we got a call from one of the engineers in the laboratory in the middle of the testing saying, look, something is wrong. Oh, no, we were worried about this. What's the matter? And they said, the emissions coming out the exhaust are cleaner (laughs) than the air that's going into the engine. Wow. And we were going, how can that be? And they called us back the next day, and then they said that um, we found out why. Someone in the facility was painting the room. So the hydrocarbons from the paint were increasing the emissions level of the air that was going into the engine, and the CRZ was cleaning up the air. Wow. Oh, my God. That is crazy. Um, <laughs> well, that, that's only the half of the story. So <laughs> we... We um, did all the ran all the tests. That in the end, it passed all the we we passed all the uh, all the, all the tests that we needed to. It was clean in the emission side of things. It actually got better fuel economy than what Honda quotes for the CRZ, but we weren't advertising it for that. So, well, finally, we've got a car bio. We passed all the tests right, and the lab gave the car back to us. Two weeks later, the carb called us and said we don't believe that the aftermarket has taken one of the cleanest cars out there and put on bigger injectors and a supercharger and passed our tests we're going to recall this to our head office we'll have it for one week three weeks later they called us up and said okay you can come and pick up the car so so we went up there and the engineer uh walked out with the keys of the crz and said this is the cleanest car we have ever tested. Oh That's man, incredible. Doug. What a and good... it was done by the done by the aftermarket. Oh That's man, incredible. like doesn't that like that story fires me up? Because yeah. I'm like, 
That's exactly what we're talking about with all these different things. I wish there was a way to put this story into the people's hands that like <laughs> there's another pathway. I just it just it just blows my mind. I I'm sorry I'm sorry to say, but you can't put that in writing because the engineer <laughs> said you cannot tell anybody this. Right. Well, <laughs> we might have tell, told some people here, but we won't put it in writing. Yeah. Yeah, and they, look, they said it's cleaner than partial zero emissions vehicle, partial zero emissions Subarus, partial zero emissions Toyotas. Right. And they said we've got bags of air from California in the 1960s sitting on the shelf here, so that we can go back. And we know what the state of the air was going back right to the 60s. And um, <laughs> and that was, we can do it. You can you can make a clean car and make, make more power. Look, this car made 120 horsepower stock with a supercharger. It made you know, around 180 horsepower. Mm -hmm. It was it was fun to drive. Yeah. So you can make it clean and fast. Man, it's so what's funny is, uh, not that this has anything to do with import tuning, but when, when Honda released... The CRZ, they they had this plan that they were going to launch it at SEMA for the most part, and they uh, they had given out a number of cars. So we actually had one of the cars. They called us and said, "Hey, listen, we've done some builds with you guys before. We're looking for reputable people to do some builds. I mean, to do some tuning, and I mean, you know, modify these vehicles and, and bring them to our booth at SEMA. Would you like to have a car?" And we said, "Sure." So they give us one of these CRZs, and they were so clear on their message, they said, hey, listen, whatever you do here, you got to make this thing be the fun, eco-friendly vehicle. Like, that was the message. Like, don't stray. You can do a whole bunch of different things. Just don't stray from it. So, you know, I'm like, okay, great. You know, we, we got this car. I'm like, we'll, we'll do some basic stuff. So we got an intake made. We got an exhaust made. You know, I mean, there's, you know, who knows what that ended up looking like. But, but we didn't really get to touch more of it. And we turned this car into a an extreme sports very green type of user lifestyle build so we show up with this thing and we've been told that this is everybody we've been told that there's i think there was 10 cars given out 10 crz's given out and we've been told that by honda that hey listen there will be one car that's substantially tuned and that's the hpd car and that will be segregated from the rest of these cars just so you know, they said, you know, so you know what's going there. Like, that's what will be the HPD developed car, and then there'll be these 10 cars. No problem. We get there. We pull in with this green machine, and literally, I mean, it's green. We painted it green. Um, <laughs> and we show up there, and um, and the three cars <laughs> to, my right, to, to our right, once we're parked in this circle, is... Brian from Hasport, and they have they have something that they've done with you know the supercharger and the whole thing. They got Busy Moto, and BC's got uh, a whole. Uh, I think he had a K swap in the thing. There's not even a, there's not even the hybrid drivetrain. I'm like, what? <laughs> and then and then there was a couple other cars that, that there was some turbo cars. And I I at time there's this gentleman named Chris Martin that worked for Honda in in you know in the PR side. And I said to Chris, I said, what the heck happened? And he's like, oh well, I'm like. Oh man, I'm like this is. I feel like we, he's like no, but you did it perfectly. I'm like I know, but like <laughs> this is not. But we put we put brakes on the car and did some stuff with Willwood and um and the car was the car was fun to drive, but it was far from fast. You know, it needed it needed something else, like a different engine. <laughs> exactly. 
Um, I may have mentioned this, so apologies if I'm repeating myself, but the Elsewhat we did for the CRZ has double the power, double the torque, and is 100 pounds lighter. Yeah, and that's incredible. Fuel economy is only a few miles per gallon less than the CRZ. But part of the reason for that is we've got the HPD wheels, tires, brake kit, and the tires are big. And so tires alone are worth a few miles per gallon. So with the bigger tires, we're losing a few miles per gallon just from the tires. Well, what, and what's crazy to me is that like right now for those people, the CRZ kind of, it, I mean, I wanna, I'm going to say it. I'll say it, Doug. You don't have to say it. It flopped, right? Like it wasn't what what they thought it was going to be. And it certainly was not a follow-up to the CRX. But what I will say is this, is that you can find these CRZs now for really cheap because nobody really <laughs> wanted the car because it wasn't really amazing, amazing hybrid. And it wasn't really an amazing, amazing engine. It kind of walked the line between not being amazing at either one of those things. So Man, this is like a whole new breed. You can get some cars right now. You guys act early. Get on this L L swap uh, thing. You can get yourself a really cool car, pretty pretty uh, cost affordably. I would say the one thing I had going for it was, you know, the the looks were pretty nice. I would say it's a good looking car. You know, it was, yeah, it had a sporty look. You could tell it was kind of related to the CRX. So you know, in that sense, that was one of the pros to it. So yeah, if you could swap it out and get that power, sounds like a pretty good deal to me. Yeah. Well, at SEMA um, at Vegas um, in November, we had a lot of people come by and said, hey, we told them this is what we're planning to do. And they said, I live in California. If you can get this carb approved, I'm in. Right. Yeah. Now, but follow what you said. Yeah, there are a lot of them Yeah. that get relatively cheaply. And we've now got a package to make, turn it into a sleeper. So if and when we get flex fuel, um, Emissions approved, you can have a 260 horsepower CRZ running on flex fuel. Which is gonna be a rocket ship. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah, I mean that's 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 gonna be go right back to the essence of what people tried to do with the B swaps into the K into the CRXs back in the day. I mean, you know, that was that was some that was a big piece of it. So now for every single swap that you do with this L series, you have to bring the actual model car that you're doing two carb with the tune the whole thing and basically run that through to get the approval for each model right yes every time you do an engine swap you in california yeah you have to turn up at the bureau automotive repair and just make sure there are no codes all the readiness is set and it's a clean engine swap right and my testing took somewhere in the order of about about 90 minutes just to run through all the process but i now know how it works and this will be the first of mini engine swaps that we do man that's such i don't want to go back to this again and keep saying but like that's such a big piece of this puzzle is the fact that like and again doug's showing the pathway for what what a lot of these vehicles and going in the future are going to need they're going to need this type of approval to be able to tune their cars but the cool path is that when you have aftermarket support and companies like honda that are doing these types of swaps i mean you may have to really send a lot of emails to doug to make sure that your swap is on the list of stuff that they're working at but with that said there's a pathway for these engine swaps and these cars to continue to be roadworthy and an alternative to uh some of the evs because i mean look 
my biggest thing with EV is not the car itself. I think you can have, I think some of the cars are incredibly cool. And I think that the idea of having EVs as a supplemental type of vehicle that's out there is incredible. However, yeah. I think that there's this other piece of EVs that that is just not being considered. And I think it's too political and that's not for you to have to worry about chiming in on. But I will say that the idea that you could have an entire country change over to EV in such a lightning flash uh, period of time and ha- not have any infrastructure in place to be able to run these vehicles is a is a problem. And the next step, like Toyota has said, and you know, Can I just yeah. ask you a quick. You said not have the infrastructure in place. Yeah. What what are you referring to? Well, I'm referring to charging stations and the abilities to keep these cars properly charged and be able to have it openly accessed um, and have these things. You know, they're coming out with these ranges which are fine, right? Because it's a standard equivalent to maybe some of the same full tanks of gas you get. But like here, for example, you drive on, let's say you go to like the New Jersey State Turnpike. And this is something you started to see. You know, when you have a gas station and you pull up and let's say you're, char- you know, you're, you're going to fill up, maybe it takes you five to eight minutes, but in that five to eight minutes, you're, you're out. However, now you have a line on the parkway of people that are waiting for charging stations because it takes them 45 minutes to get enough charge to be able to move from it. And so the amount of infrastructure you'll need to have to be able to keep these vehicles powered, um, I, it's just not there. We talk about California and the grid. I was yeah. out there not too long ago during the summer, and I had a text because I was in their geo area that said, please turn your air conditioner to 78 and turn off um, and please don't charge your cars tonight because there's going to be these rolling brownouts because and I mean that's when you know the population of California for EV you know consumers are only at like less than 20 percent I think California is at what eight percent yeah I think I think it's maybe somewhere between 10 20 percent in terms of people who own EVs in California and at that rate they're still telling people not to charge their cars I mean but they want you know, upwards to 100% of the, the population to own EVs, they don't have the infrastructure. But with that said, Doug's about to school us. Tell me, <laughs> what, are, what am I missing? <laughs> yes, while well, I'm with smart people, and yes, I'm about to school you. Okay, I own <laughs> a lot of Hondas. Yeah, okay? yeah. Obviously. Sure. Um, and the most recent one is a Street Beagle L-Swapped CRZ. Okay. <laughs> I also own an electric vehicle. Okay. And I've also got solar on my relatively small house it's only 1300 square feet or 1250. Um, my business uh, Hondata is run entirely on solar power so we get a check every year from our power company now about now I'm, I'm just trying some numbers out here about 90 to 95 percent of a person's vehicle running is done within a relatively short distance Absolutely. from home Mm-hmm. So yes, I have solar on my house that provides, and I, I've also disconnected um, methane gas, otherwise known as natural gas, from the house. So I'm completely electric at home. So that provides all the running of the house, and it gives me twenty thousand miles a year of EV car running. So my running costs for my EV are zero, no maintenance, only tires. 
uh, no maintenance, no mileage charges. Um, and even at home, I get a check every year, just a small one from the power company. So it can be done. Look, I realize I'm not everyone. People, some people live in apartments and they don't have the ability to um, put solar on their apartment because it's a shared apartment, but it can be done. And I'm, I'm sorry, I'm speaking against the power utilities at the moment, but they're very much against people putting solar on their roofs because it takes away from their profit. Yeah. They right. build big solar farms, but the distributed power grid is the most efficient. So I go back to what you're saying. There is a room for EV, there's room for EV, and there's room for gasoline cars as well as as far as new cars are concerned. But yeah. most of your EV mileage is at a short distance from your home. Yeah. Not Right. And I agree with you, it does take time to charge them up. Um, but when I'm traveling to three or 400 miles, typically it's the charging time is enough to go get a bite to eat. Yeah, I, I think I think my my struggle with it is is the fact that you're talking about. I mean, again, I, I believe that the pathway that we can exist on that would make things much more seamless, and I think that you could cut the carbon footprint down tremendously, is by the use of some of these hybrids. The idea that the plug-in hybrids have the ability to have a, like usually a 40-mile range, and for the most part, the average American commutes something in the area of 22 miles you know, uh, you know, know, to work, and that would cover most of their drive on a yes. plug-in charge. Yes. But it still doesn't negate the rest of the thing for longer commutes or longer trips or whatever it may be. And I, I guess that's my, that's my problem with this whole s situation is it's being kind of rushed into people's hands. I mean, we're not, the truth is, I mean, for me, I don't know where you're located, but like where we're located in New York, it, the, to, to do solar on, on homes besides these lease programs, they only give you 20% of the actual power you, you develop toward the grid. You have this issue where, they're still fairly expensive and it would require a lot of funds for people to be individually able to power their homes. I just think I'm not saying that it's there's no pathway there. I'm just saying that right now <clears throat> for that if if we were to flip a switch and in the next you know 5 years everything became EV, I think we'd have a substantial issue with rising power costs. I agree that there's a lot more infrastructure that needs to go in. Yeah. And this is an area that's rapidly changing yeah and california is certainly not helped by the utility <laughs> that's true uh <laughs> i think i think I, yeah california is an interesting place that uh, you know we'll we'll stay away from commenting on but i i think that you know the biggest piece of this puzzle is that it does seem that there's a way for import enthusiasts to stay active in in a lot of these different platforms. It's just going to require a default change into maybe the way they think about their builds when they start. Look, the whole premise of that company, Hondata, is to provide tools, just as you said, to give them the ability to do something fun to do an engine swap, to tune up an engine. And as I've hopefully clearly explained, you can make a lot more power and keep it clean. Mm -hmm. so, right. Before we wrap up, Doug, 
Ooh, Let me I, sh- I, yeah. I had one question in yeah. particular that I wanted to ask. That was a, uh, it's a very Honda centric question, which is very fitting. And just yeah. as a guy like myself, who I've, you know, messed around with a lot of Hondas in the past, which is civics and Integras and preludes and RSX and whatever. Uh, and I've always just been such a big fan of Hondas in general. I want to ask someone like yourself, really interestingly, like we were always waiting for that turbo Honda engine to come out from, you know, from the manufacturer and like, you know, when we had engines like the K20 and the K24, uh, you know, we dreamt about a factory turbo car. Now that we got the L, the L series, it kind of felt like a little bit more of a letdown. But, um, you know, for some 1.5, you've got the two liter Accord engine and the Civic Type R engine. So there are much higher performance um, engines and vehicles that you can, that you can select. Right. And so when you are, uh, you know, when I was trying to do some tuning on my K24, I found that with a naturally aspirated engine that, you know, you had, I guess, not as much gains as you would hope as if someone who's running a turbo car on a GTI or a WRX or something like that, that you had such, you know, smaller amount of gains. And uh, now when someone's looking at something like the L series with the turbo, the 1.5 with the turbo, do you think that you, you said that uh, when you start adding power to those engines that they can break? Do you think that people are better off doing something like the 2.0 uh, out of the like the the Civic Touring without you know the naturally aspirated 2.0? No, the base model two liter Civic without a turbo is not the engine to choose. It's the if you're doing an engine swap, the engine to choose is the two liter Accord. Mm. The two liter Accord engine is built in Ohio in the same factory that the Civic Type R engine. So the two liter Accord is almost a Type R engine. Okay. That is the engine of choice, and that I was going to add that in a little bit earlier. The next step up from the L swap is the Accord engine, and the next engine swap we'll be working on and testing, getting bar approval for, will be the two-liter Accord, and will have a lot more power and torque, and it'll be a lot more reliable because the pistons and rods are of almost type R strength. Cool. Wow. Yeah. That's that's a great piece. So if you're planning a build out there. That may be something that you want to keep an eye on from Honda so that you you know exactly when you're going to be able to kind of stop. But listen, this is the time. Start yeah. sourcing your parts out. There's yeah. like, well, people aren't on the hunt for this stuff yet. This is the time to, to peek out. Exactly. Look, one of my friends from Honda, he's got one of the last manual accords, and we've just finished doing some flex fuel tuning on that. And he's making 350 horsepower and 400 pound feet of torque. Wow. Sorry. Wrong way around. I understand. 400 horsepower and 350, 350 pound feet of torque. But we limited the torque. Okay. We made a lot more. Um, but And that he's stock. Right. It's stock rod, stock piston, stock gearbox. And so, yeah, it, this is this is the possibilities. You can you can, you can can get a lot of gains, but this is why we're so going how about flex fuel and getting that through the labs because we know that high-octane flex fuel is – Superb for performance, and you talk to any of you, any turbo owner about running flex fuel, and they'll speak very positively about it. So, Doug, kind of in wrapping up, there's two questions I want to ask you. The first question, I'll ask them both at one time. You can answer them however you'd like. Um, the first question really has a lot to do with <clears throat> the the automotive aftermarket tuning industry. Do you feel that there's going to be? I mean, we've seen it come from certain companies. Um, do you feel that there's going to be this major shift where some companies are going to kind of drop off and then there's going to be other companies that are going to have to kind of get into the lane of where Cobb and you and Honda are at where they're coming up with a lot of these compliant tunes to be able to say, 
this is what it's going to be off the shelf. I'm seeing uh, many, many more companies that are paying attention to 49 state and CARB approval for um, just making sure that there are good, clean solutions for their customers. And on the other side of things, I've seen customers who have been dealing with a lot of the B-series engines, but doing not so smart things like doing a lot of street tuning and street racing and basically being putting targets on their backs. Yeah. Hey, come after me, EPA. I'm doing stupid stuff. No, you don't do that. You can you can keep it clean, as I've said over and over again. But um, yeah, I think you get a few people drop out of the market, but I'm seeing more and more companies like us focusing on keeping it green. Excellent. And so I think you've already answered this, but to give yourself a, a wrap up here. So how, how do you see Han data in the future? How do you see when you look when you look down the uh, kind of down the the proverbial highway here? How do you see Han data in the next five, maybe 10 years as as we kind of go down this, um, you know, emissions clean road? Well, we cover such a small percentage of the available Honda engines. So yeah. I actually see room for expansion into the V6 engines and covering more flex fuel support. So there's plenty of growth for us. Plenty. That's great. Doug, thank you so much for coming on and spending so much time with us. I, I think it's it's nice to hear kind of the thought process behind somebody that is I would say, you know, in one of the ones leading the way into this clean pathway to make power, but also just to hear that there that there is life and at the end of this tunnel. I think a lot of people feel there's a lot of doom and gloom, especially with some of the announcements that came out in the past year or two. And and to know that there's a pathway feels good. Well, it's been a joy and it's been absolutely fun talking to you guys and sharing what we're doing. Uh, what we've done, what we will be doing in the future. And there's, as far as I'm concerned, there is no doom and gloom. There is plenty of life in the Honda tuning industry. Well, listen, I will take that any day of the week. Yep. And listen, starting off a new year feels good with knowing how, how, how that there's good people like, like you and Honda there supporting the aftermarket segment in a way that will allow us all to kind of harmoniously enjoy what we love and do it cleanly. Yes. Doug, thank you so much. Uh, hopefully we, we speak real soon and we wish you a good start to the new year. Oh, I'd love to um, share with you in the future. Yeah. Um, further projects that we um, we come up with. So, yeah, uh, keep us in the loop because our absolutely. audience, this is, this is like the prime stuff. You know what I mean? This is the stuff that they just just wait for so um we're happy to have you on anytime i'd love to be here all right doug thank, thank you so you much thank you